Oh, let's get it. Monday, January 24th, 2022. Had to get the year right this week. Born in the Battle, brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. However you listen to Born in the Battle, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, the player inside the blog on blogs.va.gov. Hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. I said that year right this time. I noticed last week I probably still said 2021. That was the first episode of the year, folks. Sue me. Personally, still not 100% from COVID. Uh, Stamina is better, but I didn't know that it can throw out your back. Uh, And that is still not 100%. Every muscle is super tight, super tensed up, which sucks because I want to get back into running, swimming, jujitsu. And with a thrown out back, none of those are a good time. It's getting better and better every week, though. Since we've been back, and even though we broke a single day download record with last week's episode, thanks to you. uh, However, there have been no new ratings, comments, emails, or reviews. If you haven't yet, please consider writing a review for Born the Battle on Apple Podcasts. Doing so does help us climb higher up in the algorithms, giving more veterans a better opportunity to discover Born the Battle, listen to the interviews of of their fellow veterans, listen to our benefits breakdown episodes, and hear what's in our news releases. It's also the best way for me to communicate with you. You leave a review, I respond. It's a good time. Press releases. We just have two this week. However, Secretary McDonough did also hold a press conference last week, and you could find that on VA's YouTube page, where he answered a variety of questions pertaining to COVID policy updates, other questions, other questions surrounding VA staff. Uh, again, that's on VA's YouTube page if you're interested in checking it out. All right, news releases. First one says for immediate release in December, the Department of Veterans Affairs National Chaplain Service made an agreement to team up with the Civil Air Patrol Chaplain Corps to expand veterans' families' access to qualified faith leaders during committal and memorial services held at VA cemeteries. VA's National Chaplain Service will provide administrative support, training, and other services to assist the Civil Air Patrol in supporting VA National Cemeteries and providing chaplain coverage when a VA chaplain is not available. Every VA medical center has chaplain services available to veterans and their families that represent a broad spectrum of religious traditions. Family members of veterans may also request chaplain support through their local VA chaplain service office when scheduling a burial. Last year, VA's National Cemetery Administration conducted more than 150,000 burials, an all-time high. For more information on VA support services, burials, and memorials, visit www.cem.va.gov. All right, next one says, for immediate release, effective January 14th, the Department of Veterans Affairs is delaying the scheduled deployment of its new electronic health record effort at the VA Central Ohio Healthcare System in response to a surge in COVID-19 cases affecting the workforce and the community. The department shifted implementation of the new electronic health record system to April 30th from the previously scheduled date of March 5th. VA data shows that as of January 13th, the VA Central Ohio Healthcare System experienced a COVID-19 positivity rate of almost 35% in its 15-county service area, with Franklin County experiencing a 153% increase in COVID-19 cases over the past 14 days. Again, this was of January 13th. 
A significant number of the workforce at the facility, which is approximately over 200 employees, are unable to work, doubling the number of employees reporting the status the previous week. And it is also one of the largest changes in the status across all VA medical facilities nationwide. And it was determined that adding an electronic health record deployment during this pandemic surge would risk significant impact to healthcare operations at the facility and the ability of staff to adequately serve veterans. VA officials are continuously reviewing the conditions at upcoming implementation sites to ensure local conditions allow for a safe deployment. The new electronic health record will replace VA's current veterans health information systems and technology architecture and will link with the Department of Defense's health records to create a lifetime of seamless care for service members and veterans. For more information about the overall effort, go to www.ehrm.va.gov. All right, a very interesting episode this week. This week's interview features two gentlemen who are considered the quote-unquote Wright brothers of the joint CIA and DOD drone warfare program. They were the project officers that helped create and implement the entire program. Army veteran Alec Bierbauer is the CEO of BlackRock Strategy LLC and has over 30 years of risk mitigation experience, including more than a decade working with international Fortune 500 companies to protect their people, brands, and market share. He has also over 20 years of experience in counterintelligence and counterterrorism, conducting and managing special military and other government operations. His career began as an Army counterintelligence special agent, working espionage investigations and special access program support in Korea, Fort Meade, Kuwait, and Panama. Following his active duty, Alex served as a staff officer to the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee. Alex's intelligence career continued with an assignment as the principal U.S. Department of Defense intelligence officer for briefing the Joint Staff, Office of Secretary of Defense, and Defense Intelligence AC leadership on special programs. His government service culminated with his work in the CIA's clandestine service as a case officer, where he was assigned to the CIA's counterterrorism center where he is the founder, program manager, and director for a National Security Council requirement that has grown to be one of CIA's most successful collection and operational engagement programs. His duties included regular interaction with both his managed assets in the field, as well as presentations to congressional committees, the director of the CIA, the Secretary of Defense, and in the U.S. President's daily brief. Alec also served as a chief of base and as an operations officer in multiple war and conflict zones. Air Force veteran Mark Cooter is a retired United States Air Force colonel and served as an intelligence officer for over 28 years. He has experienced the Desert Storm, the Balkans, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya. As a fighter weapons school graduate, he commanded the 497th of Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Group and the 547th Intelligence Squadron. He served as the operations officer for the Air Force's component of this joint CIA and United States Air Force venture, operating the Predator remotely piloted aircraft system. Since retiring from active duty, he's been the Director of Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance Operations for Patch Plus Consulting Incorporated. Recently, both of these two gentlemen documented the early days of the drone warfare program in their book, Never mind, we'll do it ourselves, the inside story of how a team of renegades broke rules, shattered barriers, and launched a drone warfare revolution. Ugh, it's a lot, but there's a lot here. Again, Air Force veteran Mark Cooter and Army veteran Alec Bierbauer. First of all, Mark, Alec, welcome to Born the Battle. Appreciate you guys for being here. Um, now, Alec, you're the CEO of BlackRock Strategy. That's no affiliation to BlackRock. 
investment firm, right? No, we're a little bit smaller than that. <laughs> Not, the same. Gotta, Not the same. But you're in Toronto right now. You are. You do have a nice, like, schwanky um, style hotel room, though. I got. I got. I got to admit. You know, you that's spend always enough, Alec. <laughs> you spend enough time in Marriotts, and they start treating you right. But it takes about twenty years. <laughs> now, Mark, you were you were in the Air Force. <clears throat> Alec, you were in the Army. Uh, both in the Intel and Counter Intel communities. And this is the question that we usually ask everybody here on Board the Battle is, when did you know that military service was going to be the first step or the next step in your life? Go ahead, Mark. Well, it's it's not a sexy answer. Uh, so I'm an Air Force brat. My dad was an Air Force pilot. And, and I got, uh, I was in my senior year of college uh, and I got the, what are you going to do with your life? And I'm like, well, that Air Force career thing wasn't bad for dad. Uh, I was too blind to fly. So I said, let's go try that for four years. And four years turned into five, 10, 20, 28. 28 years. Very good. Very good. Mark? So uh, so for me, it was uh, a little bit of a rebellious phase in high school. Um, a little bit unfocused, a little bit not ready for college. And, uh, you know, so I went down to the recruiter at the age of 17 and got into the delayed entry program for the Army. He had a compelling pitch and I and I went for it. What um, was the pitch? Join the Army, see the world, you know, rebel against your parents, rebel against the, the standard. I was in high school in Potomac, Maryland, and 98% of my class went to uh, straight to college. So I had to, had to be a little bit different. But yeah, so I enlisted. Uh, did my initial four years, got out, went to college, went back in uh, as a warrant officer, um, wound up transitioning from there to uh, uh, to a civilian position for, for DIA and then assigned to the joint staff. And then from there, went to CIA where I finished the rest of my government career. Very good. Very good. DIA being the Defense Intelligence Defense Agency. Intelligence, right, for those. Right. I mean, everybody knows CIA. DIA is a little different. Uh, basically, the uh, let me know if this is accurate. The the defense's version of, you know, intelligence collection, that sort of thing. Yeah. Part of the same intelligence community, um, serving a little bit more focused uh, customer. Uh, but yeah, yeah, same of the part of the same overall big machine. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Um while you were both were in and, and Mark, I'll start with you and then you can go to Alec. Uh, give me either a best friend or your greatest mentor. That's a tough question. Uh, so I'm going to give you a, a couple of mentors. Uh, General Schaefer, uh, Glenn Schaefer, who was the A2 equivalent for the Air Force during the pro- time of this program. Uh, he really shaped me and how to deal with the inner workings of the intelligence community, especially working uh, this project. And, and then I got to tell you, I had a lot of, a lot of my career was in uh, flying units. And so I, I had uh, some great mentors that were fighter pilots uh, that uh, shaped me as a leader. Ed Hool being one when I was in Germany uh, was, uh, and I got several others. So I, I, I was lucky to have a lot of, uh, uh, senior officers that helped shape me. They probably, sh- they probably say they failed. <laughs> because, <laughs> what uh, what, what uh, do they teach you? Really, uh, to never take no for an answer, I think is the, and be persistent and just, uh, 
do a good job and the job you're in and everything else will take care of itself. Very good. Alec? Yeah, so on the uh, on the Army side, um, in early career, it was uh, uh, Chief Warrant Officer for Mike Chalmers, now deceased, uh, NSF Intel Warrant. And, uh, you know, took me under his wing as a senior enlisted guy, convinced me to go the warrant path and uh, and really taught me not just about, you know, uh, troop leading, but also the Intel mission and a lot of life lessons along the way, too. So we, uh, you know, connected early on and, you know, stayed stayed friends and, you know, escorted his his body down to his funeral uh, on the backside of his of his, of his life and, and experiences, but wow. on the, on the agency side, and there's a lot of people that probably count this guy as a mentor, um, uh, Charlie Allen, who is the associate director for collections under, uh, at the time, uh, George Tennant, uh, just, a just a giant of a man and, um, you know, a pillar of the intelligence community and, uh, he, he, there was never no as an acceptable answer. And it was always, we're going to find a way to do this. So gotcha. good, good, uh, you know, good stubborn approach to getting things done, but you know what? It resonated really well. Very good. Very good. Now, gentlemen, I, I haven't read, uh, your book, uh, but, but what pink my what piqued my interest, uh, you two and you two gentlemen was in my research, retired air force, Retired Air Force Brigadier General Mansi called you guys the Wright Brothers of the Armed Drone Program. Um, did you two link up when you were both in, or Alec? Were you were you out by then? Did you guys meet during, or did you guys meet during the formation of the Predator Drone Program? How did you two guys initially link up? So from uh, from the inception of the program, and the program was initially a. DOD, you've got technologies and a bigger checkbook. CIA, you've got unique authorities uh, and the intel picture on, at the time, bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Um, put your put your capabilities together and go do good things. So from the agency guy, I got aside, I got tasked as the action officer uh, for that because I had the I had the DOD background. I understood and could navigate the halls of the Pentagon a little bit. Um, and, uh, and once we saw that there was a partial air force solution to this, um, with predator or a potential, certainly with predator, um, was when, uh, we started getting exposed to, you know, the behind the scenes of, of the technology and the people. And I think Mark and I found ourselves at the same meeting, uh, somewhere at the Pentagon, uh, inside, uh, joint staff skiff. And uh, probably staring across her. I mean, certainly for me, room full of room full of people and some Air Force folks. Um, and uh, I think from that limited engagement, it was like this is going to be interesting. We'll we'll see how it goes. But uh, you know, it wasn't. Um, I, I don't think I don't think we knew at the time that it was going to be a you know a twenty year link, uh, and certainly a you know near twenty four seven link for. For the first couple of years, but uh, but that was that was first contact. Gotcha, Mark. Anything to add to that? I would just say, you know, I, I had had the opportunity in my previous assignment to uh, work in the Air Force Predator Program. I was a operations officer and sensor operator for uh, the the first Predator Squadron we had. 
Uh, I was probably a couple of years into it and then just got pulled away from that to to uh, go to the Pentagon and thought I wasn't going to do any of that. And then I got told, nope, drop everything. Uh, you're going to go lead this uh, as uh, for the Air Force as an action officer and go down to this meeting. And here I go to this meeting and there's this he was the probably youngest looking guy in the room and I was the most <laughs> junior officer. So that's there how you it go. started. Natural. Um, now I'm, I'm assuming, so let me get this straight. I'm assuming this capability was already being adopted by the DOD at the time. The, the predator, the not, maybe not really the striking capability, but the actual surveillance capability. Uh, in a past episode, we talked with Don Halfacre who worked at DARPA around this time and saw some of, some of the drone capabilities being developed by the, in its infancy. But I'm, was this a capability that was a strike capability at that time, or was it strictly surveillance? Well, up to, up to that point, we had, uh, we had just done surveillance. We had done work in the Balkans, a little bit of work for the no-fly zone in Iraq, but nothing. Uh, and we had done some, though I don't think we totally realized at the time, we had done some counter-terrorist kinds of things in the Balkans, but certainly not to the magnitude that we were about to embark on in this program. Certainly not... Uh, uh, the ability to do it uh, remotely from long distances like we were about to do. Yeah. And, and certainly not the uh, collaboration uh, that we would ensue with Alec. And, and lastly, not in an environment that we were supposed to not be detected and not be engaged by an adversary. You talk about the long distances. Um, you know, when I was in NASCAR, I would see a production in Charlotte, you know, they would man the cameras and everything and the track would be, you know, the track would be like Vegas or something. So I, I, you're talking about that now and I'm wondering, I'm like, man, did that capability, was that born, which way, which, which came first, the chicken or the egg, as far as that capability. Very interesting. Um, so talk to me about the history a little bit. It, you, like you said, it didn't start in Afghanistan. It actually started in Bosnia. Was that, give me about what year was it during like the Balkan strikes in the mid nineties or was it a little bit later than that? When did this really kind of, what was the emphasis? What was the very first part of it in the Balkans? Uh, so 96 timeframe uh, is really uh, when the, mm-hmm. it really started um, for the most part. I, I was involved starting in late 97 Wow. Is when I got to our Air Force uh, Air Force unit, um, and so yeah, it started off, and, and the, the agency had some capabilities in the Balkans, very similar to the to the Predator, and the, and the Air Force had their their the program that they took over from the Army. Uh, so, but it was you know you got to remember, and this is that technology thing when we we took off and landed fairly close to the target within five hundred miles was the limits at the time. And, uh, uh, and then we would fly in, in support of the predominantly the, the Balkans mission support and the, the army stuff, but the, you know, our ability to push the video was not like we were to finally develop. And, uh, yeah. uh we, we couldn't communicate with the guys on the ground at the time very easily. So, um, was a challenge. Sounds like there's a lot of gaps in logistics. I can only remember like when it was like a combat camera in like 2003, just getting imagery from Iraq was, was a challenge or, you know, or a cave in Afghanistan. Nowadays, it's, it's so connected. The world's so connected, but back then it, I don't, I think people forget sometimes that it really wasn't at that time. 
Um, so the program got footage from Al Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan. If I'm reading this right, some of the, my research before nine 11, right? Correct. Yeah. And it's, uh, so just taking a, a step back to how we got there, you know, it was in that tasking, uh, for Pentagon and CIA to work together, which was, it was not unprecedented. Um, but, uh, that support was usually not taking place on a technology development level. Um, and it, uh, it, it would have been more focused on a, you know, who can create access and how do you move people? Um, in this case, uh, you know, our initial task was in January of 2000 to develop the capability and with an end wow. state of, um, developing actionable intelligence against bin Laden. And that was January 2000. We were given nine months to do it and some constraints, uh, major ones being, and, and as you just, as you just pointed out, you know, we lose track over time, but in 2000, there were zero Americans on the ground in Afghanistan. There was zero collection capability in a, uh, putting us eyes on target, uh, uh, perspective in Afghanistan. We were we talking to, both. Are we talking even the CIA at the time? And that's where I was at the time. So okay. our, uh, I was working our networks, our ground networks, our human capabilities in Afghanistan. And we did have Afghans. Um, we had networks, um, but in order to support a, a military strike um, or a capture operation, the threshold was you had to have U.S. eyes on target. Gotcha. So, and that was our, that was our task. We took a very liberal interpretation of what U.S. eyes on target meant and figured, can we do this? Can we do this? (laughs) Exactly. Can we do this? uh, Can we do this remote? And it was an acceptable threshold at the time, you know, Afghanistan being landlocked, and this is not dissimilar from problems that we're going to face here in the near future. Again, Afghanistan being landlocked, not having a lot of friends in the neighborhood, um, you know, we weren't willing to put manned aircraft over Afghanistan without a combat search and rescue capability. So putting putting any type of manned collection platforms over Afghanistan was a non-starter at the time. So that's how we got to, well, let's see if an unmanned vehicle will work. Let's see if the camera on the on the drone is capable. And let's see if we can see it and we can give it to the decision makers in real time. And in that nine months, that capability was put together, deployed to our uh, most, uh, probably most friendly nation at the time uh, to operate from. Um, And then, you know, inside of nine months, penetrated Afghan airspace and uh, and started our collection mission. But that type of collection mission wasn't taking, you know, a a dynamically tasked ISR, uh, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance asset, didn't really exist at that point. The national level imagery analysts didn't have experience looking at full motion video. They were looking at still images from satellites or YouTube missions. Wow. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to September of 2000, uh, as we're looking at and databasing terrorist training camps within Afghanistan, um, we found Bin Laden uh, on, our, on our fifth mission. And uh, we're able to put, you know, put technical U.S. eyes on target uh, and answer that requirement that we've been given uh, nine months earlier. Wow. A full year before 9-11. Yes. Yeah, literally wow. a full year before 9-11. Wow. 
So whose idea was to strap a freaking hellfire, hellfire missile on these things? <laughs> I will say there are a lot of people uh, that will take lots of credit and stuff. I will give uh, to General Jumper, who uh, first started uh, when he was at the the commander of the United States Air Forces in Europe. Uh, and then when he moved into some CONUS jobs, they had uh, for the Balkans during Allied Force in 1999, they had put a, a, a laser designator on uh, uh, one, uh, one predator system. And we had worked through that. And then he at the Air Combat Command was developing uh, Hellfire capability. That's where he wanted to go next. But the Air Force program for that was at least two years to get it done and millions and millions of dollars. And uh, I, I will say I will give Alec credit for pushing to bring those together and speed those up from the agency side. And then there was a uh, Mr. Snake Clark, who's infamous in the Air Force. His name forget- is Snake Clark. Yes. That's his, his call sign, James Clark. Okay. Uh, like it. Uh, Love it. He, uh, a colonel, then he turned into a civilian within the confines of the program that we dealt. Uh, he was known for uh, making things happen fast. And so we worked to shorten that time frame, uh, really focus it on this mission. And that's how we were uh, from the time when we found bin Laden till, you know, the first uh, testing of the system was February, March of 2021. And so that's when we married it. So General Jumper was the Dr. Evil that wanted to put a freaking laser on a shark. And Alec was the one, Alec was the one that made it, like ran it to the ground on the agency side. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, talk to me about the, the physical challenges of putting a freaking missile on a drone. Uh, like the physical challenges. I'm, I'm pretty sure you guys ran into some of those challenges. You know, the, uh, from my perspective, uh, Putting a missile on the drone was um, was not the first choice, but it quickly became it quickly became well for the. What was your first choice for the non-engineer? If I, you know, when we started looking at it, and it was it was literally uh, there had been some discussions before we saw Bin Laden, but uh, our resolve definitely locked down uh, the day that we put eyes on Bin Laden and couldn't do anything about it. Um, and mm. hence, hence the name of the book, Never Mind, We'll Do It Ourselves. How do we shorten that chain even further? We got to put a weapon system on the aircraft. What's the right weapon system for the aircraft? And, you know, knowing that the max weight that we could put on a, on a predator wing was estimated about a hundred pounds, you know, being the, being the novice at the, uh, at the weapon systems and the engineering side, I looked at it and I said, well, how what's the max amount of high explosives and that you could put in that hundred pounds and and the minimum amount of wrapper to to carry it and get it there you know, i was less concerned about how fast it got to target and and more concerned about having a good effect once it got there and sure. i was quickly quickly educated uh you know by by mark by the air force side we we engaged the army because the air force didn't have a lot in inventory that was that small um to to meet that requirement so we had to engage the army at uh, Redstone Arsenal um, and change dramatically from what a Hellfire was supposed to do. So in terms of challenges, Hellfire was designed to be launched off of a helicopter at relatively low altitudes. And yeah. we're saying we're going to take that up about above 12, 15 or better 
uh, altitude and uh, is it going to work and how's it going to work and what's the engineering challenges, what's the software challenges, what's the hardware challenges in making that work. But General Atomics, manufacturer of uh, Predator at the time, wasn't fully convinced that uh, that you could literally pull the trigger on a, a Hellfire off of the wing and it not tear the wing off the off of the Predator. Um, gotcha. So that was uh, that was an early an early challenge, you know, along with you know putting a bomb rack adapter, uh, putting the rail onto the onto the Predator was a challenge. Um, that uh, you know, as Mark noted, it was. If the Air Force was looking at it on a standard timeline, it was going to be a couple of years and multiple millions of dollars. Um, you know, we we were much less patient than than that, and and needed the solution while we had people's attention and while we had a a viable target and a capability to to get that weapon system there. So, you know, yes, the modeling and the simulations for what's going to happen to the wing, uh, you know, that that was somewhat artificial. Uh, and, and, uh, we pushed through that pretty hard. And then once we actually started shooting them, I think there's a, there's a picture in the book of the first shot, uh, with a predator on the ground on a, on a stand, uh, just in case the wing came off. So he didn't lose the rest of the aircraft. Uh, so it was a ground, uh, a ground shot, uh, off of the wing, you know, instrumented to see, uh, see what the effects would be. But, um, and that worked and, you know, put it in the air and, and kept progressing from there. But that was, that was accomplished for, I think our on paper solution was half a million dollars and, um, you know, a couple of, I don't know, the key part of it in a couple of weeks. And then we started tweaking it after that. So you went from, you went from a program that people thought it was going to take tens, if not hundred million dollars, a couple of years, and you guys shorted it down to 500,000 first shot off within the, the, a year. The, the slide said that Mr. Clark had me do said $495,000 in 60 days. Wow. That's burning through some coin, man, yeah. <laughs> but, but worth it. But I mean, you know, I just think about my personal pocketbook and like, oh, man, that'd be a lot of money. Okay. So I, I, I want to say, <laughs> I want to say something though, that, yeah, you know, that the hellfire gets a lot of, you know, obviously uh, weaponizing. It was a big deal, but the other huge technical hurdle was because of, uh, some of the constraints that Alec mentioned, and oh, by the way, you have to be able to do that from the continental United States. So the pilot has to, and the sensor operator have to see the target in real time, have to be able to designate that target, has to hold the laser on there real time and fire the weapon through the time of flight of the weapon from 6,000 miles away. Ready, go. <laughs> Yeah, that's a whole different type of technical capability um, when you talk about that. Like I said, I think about that in 2001, you know, internet capability, bandwidth, all that stuff, the challenges that that, that were there at the time. It's just incredible. Um, and then, like you said, the altitude, like you talk about cold air and that sort of thing. Like, I'm pretty sure you guys ran into some challenges there. Um, okay, so October 7th, 2001, the first strike happens. The first unmanned aerial strike happens. An unsuccessful attempt to kill uh, Mullah Muhammad Omar. Uh, it was CIA authorized. And let me know if I'm wrong on any of this. It was CIA authorized strike in country, not a DOD strike. A uh, little bit of a confusion. Uh, walk me through that day. So, you know, our target 
deck that we were set up with for that for that night, first night of the war. Um, you know, that was you know, CENTCOM's running the war at this point. Um, we were tasked with uh, finding Mullah Omar before before the first bombs drop. Um, you know, putting eyes on on him, uh, and then ideally uh, finding the right scenario where uh, where there could be a strike against against Omar. Omar ahead of the Taliban at the time, uh, and and really that bridge between the Taliban and and Bin Laden and his Al Qaeda infrastructure that was in Afghanistan. So we did. We you know we put eyes on him uh, at his compound just outside of Kandahar, um, and then uh, maintained our our track on him. You know after the first JDAMs hit the runway in, in Kandahar, he and his security detail moved pretty quickly. Uh, getting him off of his uh, his compound and moving, and we really had no idea where he was going. But we had the persistence to be able to follow him um, as he as he went different, uh, made a couple different stops. You know, first one downtown, and you know, yeah. So this is this is the first time that there's even consideration for pulling the trigger uh, off of a, a hellfire off a of predator. And while CIA had the responsibility for the target and for uh, directing the the predator collection for that uh, for that particular mission, the decision making on when, how, where was um, it was squishy. Uh, it was not well articulated, and uh, but it was there was open comms, you know. So in in the operations center that that I was manning at that point, we had CIA director in there, most of his senior staff, um, you know, a cast of. I don't know, 40, 50, 60 people in a room that was built to hold 15 or 20 um, and an open line between uh, George Tennant as the director and Tommy Franks as the CENTCOM commander. Um, and that that, cla- that uh, collaboration and coordination uh, went pretty strong. Mullah Omar, as he's sitting in the city, you know, the, the technical aspects of lining up a shot uh, especially given you know the fact that you know we had pushed through the technology development on this uh, in the timeline that Mark talked about, you know, it was a very narrow window. You know, you're 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 pretty aggressive. You're you're running your your angle of attack. Your the the deviation left and right of the target uh, all had to be really really tightly lined up. Uh, it's evolved tremendously since then. Um, but in that lineup, you know, we're deconflicting. Is it too close to collateral damage? You know, keep in mind that our fight was with bin Laden uh, and key Taliban leadership at that point. It was not with the Afghan people. So there was a, a hypersensitivity towards not having, you know, a civilian casualty scenario uh, in this or hitting culturally significant targets or no strike targets. Um, couldn't get that first shot um, lined up and approved. Uh, and Omar's on the move again. Next place he stopped, getting things lined up. One of the analysts comes up and says, I think that's a mosque. And at that point, I'll stop. We got to confirm whether this is a mosque or this is not a mosque. But, you know, with that, with that uh, assessment being put on the table, it definitely it brought things to, um, to, to a more measured pace to make sure that we had a viable uh, target and strike. Um, and it, and it played out from there to ultimately the decision was made. We couldn't, we couldn't engage that building. We needed to try to push Omar off of the, off, off of the mosque and, and into a more, uh, viable, uh, target scenario. Um, and so first, first strike, 
uh, first engagement was hellfire off a of predator against uh, Omar's vehicle and security detail. Um, and of the, probably the longest 30 seconds of my life uh, in that time of flight from seeing the, seeing the missile leave the rail uh, with the cast of characters that we had uh, watching this in, in multiple locations and, until there was a weapon on target. Um, but, you know, a, uh, a technical success and being able to, to walk through that and make that happen. Gotcha. Now, but there were, uh, in my research, I read that there was a three star that didn't know that this was happening in his AO and was a little, how'd that go down? Mark, that was one of your guys at KIOP, right? <laughs> well, well, let me first go back a couple. So you got to remember that first shot, we had only shot 15 test shots before that time. So wow. that's why the, the, uh, the run-in heading and the altitude and everything had to be so precise because that's all the test data that we had. We, we had some other confidence, but we knew uh, if we ran this, these parameters, we had a high uh, chance of success. Yeah. Uh, when we got over the target and the Moss Alec referred to, you know, that wasn't exactly where we thought Omar was. He was another building and we felt confident we could uh, put it off azimuth and still hit the target. So, um, so we had to work through that and sure. getting to your question, you know, while we had some ideas on the command and control, it, it wasn't because of the classification of the program and stuff. Uh, the higher level folks weren't confident in how the command and control was set up. And so we, as typically, and we had some of these problems in, uh, uh, in my previous time and even Air Force Predator, it's a lot of people, especially when you can push that video around the world, there are a lot of people that think they get a vote in, uh, in uh, what's, what's the shot and the authority and everything else. Uh, and we had developed and I, I, I felt confident in who I, who I took orders from. And, uh, but so there was, I hate to say it because, there was probably some consensus building that people tried to do versus having a very structured who had operational control of us, who we would give tactical control of. And over time we worked through that, but it was, uh, yeah. as I think Alec used to, it was squishy. For yeah, sure. I can imagine if you're in charge of the air war in Afghanistan and you see a, a missile that you didn't authorize hit, I'm pretty sure, I'm sure you're sure there were some good conversations afterwards. Right. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I, I have to say, uh, uh, my boss, uh, Colonel Ed Boyle, got numerous phone calls from general officers uh, and their displeasure with us. So, gotcha. but, you know, that was a, you know, the challenge was for the air component uh, and where they sat versus the uh, combatant commander uh, who dealt with the agency mostly. So that, that was definitely a challenge we had to work through. Almost gotcha. on a daily basis. Doesn't sound like a, something that you would be directly involved. It sounds like something that somebody else should probably have, have communicated that there. Gotcha. Looking at the chain of command, look at seeing that command structure. I can see it. I can see it. Um, but it's a, sorry, if I could just, um, you know, where we were at that point uh, was, you know, a less than a month after 9-11. Uh, yeah. Up until 9-11, this was a, you know, highly classified uh, completely, you know, off most people's radar um, program that was a, a CIA covert action um, 
And so to transition that to being part of the bigger, the bigger machine, um, it was, it was, uh, it was not smooth through the, through that, you know, that intervening, you know, three and a half weeks, uh, between nine 11 and the, and the start of the war, uh, for sure. And it was also not clear whether, you know, I mean, we had good, healthy debates on, is this a strategic asset? Is this a tactical asset? Does this become a DOD capability? Does this become a CIA capability? Should the CIA be shooting hellfire missiles? Uh, you know, those were, this was uncharted territory for the most part. And, uh, and I mean, it took, and you would hope that that evolution was subsequently quick and, and clear uh, after 20, that. Night, 20 years but, later, they're still mm, having that debate. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and imagine also the other piece of this is uh, contacting a, uh, a ground party, whether it's agency or special operations forces out in the middle of nowhere and telling yeah. them at the time that you're a, you're a UAV with two Hellfire missiles and you're ready to help. You can laser designate. And they had no idea about this. And we wow. never told them, oh, by the way, I'm sitting in the continental United States. Because wow. that would have blown their minds. <laughs> now, now the whole goal of this program, and it sounds like, I mean, it's rapid advance from 96, just surveillance to, hey, we're shooting freaking missiles in, in 2001. Uh, of course, the goal was to get lives out of harm's way, right? You know, you can strike somebody from the air, make sure we don't have it. You don't, you don't have anybody on the ground for a mission like that. Did you get any pushback from those communities that that was that mission for them uh, in the soft community or in, in any other communities? I would say this, that that's a little bit of the misconception. And that is, it wasn't that we wanted to bring people out of harm's way. It okay. was actually a political decision that we couldn't put uh, U.S. forces on the ground in our host country. So that's what drove us to the technical solution in 2000 to remote it. And then when we uh, uh, and we were in a, a, an allied country and then when we realized uh, for some legal reasons, we couldn't shoot from anywhere but the continental United States. That's what drove us back to the U.S. It was it wasn't, hey, we can save American lives this way. That was never in our calculus. From an agency perspective, it was, you know, there was there was a risk tolerance, um, but there was there was political consequence to, you know, hey, we're going to put this thing in a in another country and operate a and it's 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 quite the oxymoron when you say a clandestine airfield, but trying to run a clandestine airfield where, you know, a, a Air Force complement, uh, which we would have preferred to have on the ground with us, to have the pros on the system there. We were, you know, a, a standard Air Force complement for Predator at that point was probably 100 people. Uh, and our threshold, our pain threshold for how we were willing to operate and the constraints that we were under was closer to 10 uh, yeah. so, you know, it be, it became a driving, uh, that, that need for a really small, low profile footprint, um, and not having, uh, uniform service members forward and operating under CIA authorities drove us to what became, you know, uh, split ops because you've got, uh, you know, an element that is solely like, what's the minimum capability that we need forward. When we need a pilot, we need a sensor operator, we need a mechanic, we need we need a technician. 
we need some troop support, we need some security, we need somebody in charge, and we need a medic. And, and all that got wrapped into those 10, 10 or 11 bodies um, forward. And their sole responsibility, and, and not to, and when I say sole responsibility, not to trivialize it, it was, it was absolutely essential. Maintain the aircraft, get it in the air, and then do a handoff by satellite to, at that point, we were flying from Europe um, and, and have the, you know, the long duration collection mission, the multiple pilots, the multiple sensor operators, the intel, the weather, the planning, yeah. all taking place from, you know, uh, the confines of a U.S. military installation in Europe. So this wasn't even uh, it wasn't even a question of saving people on the ground because there was nobody on the ground to like switch out you know, as far as as far as mission capability. This was just, hey, we need this capability, period. Got it. Got yeah, it. The, the you know, the, the so uh, President Clinton at, you know, at the end of 99 in January of 2000, took a briefing from the CIA director and was dissatisfied with the level of uh, collection and um, activities against bin Laden at the time and said, do more, do better, which is what drove that memo that, uh, that tasked us, you know, within the next nine months to, to go and uh, to go and do this. But it's not that there weren't capabilities or, or the ability to develop those capabilities on the ground, but uh you know, this is this is, you know, again, no Americans on the ground, no technologies, Taliban's in charge of 90, 95 percent of the country. You know, they don't yeah. allow cell phones. They don't allow cameras. They don't allow, you know, I mean, all the the tools and, and uh, capabilities that, you know, for a traditional for a, collection at the time for traditional collection, but then for a decision maker to authorize, you know, a military uh, engagement of some sort based off of, you know, somebody that nobody had, you know, a, a, a unproven uh, source on the ground. Gotcha. Very good. Very good. Super interesting. Um, so 20 years ago, it was predator hellfire. What are the capabilities now? How have they improved? I, I think um, broadly, uh, my answer to that is, You've still got predator or the evolutions thereof, um, you know, gray eagle and reaper, um, multiple variants, multiple evolutions in terms of capability, payload, uh, weights, um, performance, endurance. So you've had many incremental improvements to both the platforms, uh, the sensor technology is is uh, has advanced significantly. The you know, you can you can see the we've got a still image in the book of what collection looked like from a, you know, from a predator at that point. Uh, and the evolution of where it is today is significant, but probably one of the most significant advancements and some pretty, pretty edgy stuff taking place now is, you know, doing more on the aircraft, um, pushing, uh, pushing the uh, the artificial intelligence aspects, the machine learning aspects. Um, the the advancements of the sensors and the computing power that's getting uh, that's getting put on the aircraft, and uh, the ability for you know uh, I mean pilots are uh, are are obviously still in the loop, but uh, there's less flying the airplane by by stick and more flying it by by keystrokes. Um, but but really the the macro 
uh, improvements are are really in the in the collection capabilities that are on those aircraft, not just the imagery pieces, but the signal intelligence and and the hyperspec multispectral capabilities that are on there um, have uh, have come a, a tremendous way to create you know, back to our strategic versus tactical uh, uh, dilemma. Um, you know, I don't know that we'll go to war again without a unmanned uh, capability, both in the air oh, and on the ground. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, yeah. You talk about the collection. I, I've seen, I mean, I, I just think about digital cameras in 2001 versus digital cameras today, you know, yeah. and I think about connectivity in 2000, from 2001 to 2000, you know, playing games on the internet back then across the world, I guess somebody across the world now, and it, it's, it's almost the same, same technology, same capability, how all that's changed, but the signal, uh, I never even thought about the signal, uh, Intel capability. That's, that's as far as intercepting signal intelligence. Is that what I'm talking about? That you're talking about? Yeah, Mark, you Mark. Uh, but the ARC 210 radio, uh, and you know, we've, we've got a section we talk about it in the book on just the necessity is the mother of invention. And some of our guys that were just, you know, super creative and, and innovative and, and cobbling together, you know, what amounted to a, a poor man's SIGINT capability very early on. And now you see the evolutions of it uh, beyond that and uh, beyond even things we can discuss here. And, and really the the ability to pull in not just information that we're taking on, on board from on the aircraft, but what's in the historical sense or what other things are seeing is leap years from, uh, you know, we were just trying to one of our biggest one of our biggest challenges is was to get the still images of that Alex the analyst had and getting them digitally to so my guys who were the sensor operators could see the target they wanted us to go after that was a challenge back then and and like you said just HD technology from where it wasn't when we started to where we are today is yeah. phenomenal amounts of information uh, like think about doing this th- think about doing this interview in 2001 you know uh, Alex in Toronto, Mark, you're, you're where? Uh, right West now? Texas. You're in West Texas and I'm in Virginia. You know, it's just uh, the advances of what that was back then to what it is now is. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's just a completely different, almost a completely different platform. Um, now gentlemen, you see, you see films like eye in the sky, uh, that portray this entire industry that you guys were on the forefront of, uh, I say industry and entire capability. Um, the first season of Jack Ryan, uh, how do you guys feel about the films that portray the capability you help develop? Well, I want the bug and the bird sensors that Alec needed more of those that yes, are an eye it. in the sky. That would have helped us tremendously to get inside a building. Uh, I, I, the one thing that's, uh, especially for eye in the sky, uh, I, I think they kind of downplay the, what, the U.S. military and the unit, the uh, intelligence community go through to vet a target. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the amount of information that's poured over, the amount of legal uh, discussions that there are on these targets. I, you know, I, I am I have always been confident. Whether it was when I was doing uh, the front end of uh, the predator, like in this program, or when I was. Uh, commanding units that exploited the information off of these platforms that uh, we were doing everything 
we needed to do to vet targets to make sure that they were legal moral targets. How many levels uh, of vetting are there for a strike or for collection? I'm assuming there's checks, but you know, at the end of the day, it's like a, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's almost like a sniper through the lens. It's, it's war, right? So what, what do you do have to go through to, to make sure that, Hey, this is we're, we we're green. Uh, a lot of it depends on the target and the situation. Uh, obviously uh, it's, it's a, if it's a military troops in contact kind of situation, and you have U.S. eyes on the ground, a person who's qualified, certified to uh, conduct that strike, uh, it, it, and, you, and you fall within the rules of engagement that have already been set forth, uh, that can go pretty rapidly and, and go on. Now, if it's like the kinds of targets that we were dealing with where there are national security implications, yeah. you're in a not a military troops and contact kind of situation. It's a completely different uh, situation. Uh, I would say, you know, early on we evolved that process, but it was hypersensitive to getting it right. Uh, and, you know, more often than not, uh, if there was, if there was uncertainty or we couldn't, we couldn't check all the boxes, then, and it didn't go. Um, you know, we, we joked, uh, uh, routinely, uh, about, uh, the fact that, you know, our decision-making was directly tied to how much fuel was left on the aircraft. Um, and, uh, you know, we would go down to, we would go down to fuel reserves if we needed to. I mean, there were days we made discussions about, you know, hey, if this may, we may not have enough fuel to get back and recover this aircraft, um, but we need to stay and get this right. Um, of course, Mark's answer, every time I asked how much time we have, it was always five minutes. Um, and that would go on for, <laughs> that would go on for hours sometimes. So, yeah, we're, we're really five minutes this time, but um, it was the diligence of, of clearing the target and, and it was, it was never, it was never based on just what we were seeing on on the image off of, off of Predator. It was, you know, it's easy to sit there and say, you know, you know, hey, it's a bad guy. Well, how do you know it's a bad guy? Um, and there were visual signatures that we were looking for, but you know, there was something that took us there. There was a piece of intelligence, either a piece of signals intelligence or human intelligence, usually that took us to wherever we were. And then you developed a, the target and justified it uh, through the process. Equating it to journalism, it's almost like you you have more than one source. Absolutely. You have multiple, multiple sources. And then you have a couple editors, depending on the level of story, how we're going to run this story. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, you had imagery people that were, you know, just pulling apart it uh, frame by frame and looking for the visual cues that they needed. Um, you had your target deck that got you there in the first place. You had your, you know, your your human intelligence on the ground that said this is an important facility and here's why. And sometimes we would sit and, and loiter over a facility for it, it might be hours. It might be days. It might be multiple missions. You know, we'll yeah. go back, we'll look at it, we'll study it some more, we'll study it some more, we'll study it some more, building that pattern of life over time. And that's something, you know, short of having somebody, you know, hiding in the hills, putting eyes on that place for that, that, uh, that duration. This is really a unique capability to be able to do that. And, and if, and if we had a, 
if we had a flaw on the timing piece, it was often, you know, we were looking for that perfect intelligence. Um, and, and you could, you could really exhaust, uh, resources, uh, looking for that, for that perfect picture. But, but the, you know, and clearing it against all the, you know, the best maps and the best ground intelligence we had at the time for, you know, like the Moss discussion, um, we get the lawyers involved and, and, uh, you know, and, and make sure that we were, uh, being completely respectful for culturally significant targets. You know, for our, you know, we sure it's not a school, it's not close to a school, there's no hospital, so forth. Um, and and uh, we told ourselves uh, in the room, uh, and and Mark on the GCS side, you know, I mean, this it, it could very easily be perceived as a video game, and it's not. Um, no, you know, there's no uh, I, to that point, as you know, to, 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 to that point, as you know, the, the VA is in, in the business of treating PTSD. Yeah. Uh, even though many of these pilots are stateside, uh, these it's I'm sure it's pretty accurate if I say that these can be traumatic events for a lot of these pilots. Well, and and think about it uh, for the crews, uh, the pilots, the sensor operators, even the folks that are exploiting the the video that's coming off of it. Not only do you have to deal with the traumatic thing that happens, whether it's loss of U.S. forces. Uh, that you've uh, been involved in or the taking of the enemy, then your shift is over and you've got to go home. And with maybe a five or 10 or 20 minute drive home to decompress. And now your kid's homework or that the lawn needs mown is your, now your, is your, now your highest priority. And you've got to try to figure out how to push that aside like that. Like that, whereas yeah, where instead where, of where you're coming back, where whereas when you're deployed, we have good, you know, we've done a lot for processes for decompression time, reintegration time, and all that. But here's a situation where that situation happened. You go home, and oh by the way, eight twelve hours later, you got to go again, nonstop. Have you seen any? Any treatment that's different from your normal treatment that helps with that? Well, I can just, uh, we've done a lot of things to integrate uh, more capabilities in the units than you would have had previously. Getting chaplains more integrated, getting chaplains with security clearances so they can be in the operations floor, getting medical folks from a mental health, behavioral health standpoint into the units uh, and, and a lot of its leaders uh, showing their own vulnerability so that, you know, their airmen can know it's OK to say, hey, I need a timeout or I need to talk to someone, you know, just. Being human and realizing that, you know, there's as much, you know, if you hurt your knee or if you've got something going on in your mind, that's it's you need to treat it. Yeah, you got to be you got to you got to be on point when you're doing something like that. Right. It's hard, yeah. you know. A couple of the movies, you know, try to try to capture that, um, you know, with varying degrees of accuracy and success. I think, but you know, for me, going from being on the Washington D.C. side of this, and yes, you know, going home and figuring out, you know, uh, how important is mowing the lawn relative to what I was doing a couple hours ago. Um, 
and it's that that it just uh, fluctuation between the extremes of you know what's what's seemingly unimportant uh, but might be to family or those those around us, and then being on the Afghanistan side uh, or other places where when your shift's over, you're uh, not very rarely ever you know completely over, but you're not. Uh, uh, you're not interacting with people that can't appreciate it. You know, you're, you know, you're either the people you're eating with, the people you're sleeping with, the people you're, you know, working with every day are understanding the going through the same thing. You got that shared experience, and and you do have people that you can talk to, and that that uh, it doesn't exist. You know, I I almost preferred it when like when we started getting uh, the ability to have TV and air conditioning and. You're getting just a taste of home, um, not enough to truly enjoy it, but enough to remind you that it's uh, that it's out there. It's it's almost easier at some level when when you don't have those uh, those constant reminders of uh, of what life's like on the other side, and you and you focus on the on the mission and that that shared shared experience of people around it. As a, as a marine, I can relate to that. I think the Marine Corps does. Uh train in that way, in that fashion. They don't like their, they don't like to be comfortable. They don't like to make their Marines coffee. <laughs> and, and, and like you said, to a point, it's, it's, I think there's a psychological effect to that. So I, I um, do yeah. very good. Um, okay. After service, uh, getting into the post-military transition part of the, part of the discussion here. Um, it seems like the Intel community has, has many openings. My cousin, uh, is, is, is counter is counter Intel right now. Uh, there's many openings for former military service members. He talks about all the time um, who have the type of experience that he has for those that don't have any Intel or counter Intel community experience uh, for someone like myself that was stuck in an S2 for seven months, given briefs, uh, but got a, just a taste of it and go, you know what? I, I kind of like this community. I kind of like this world. Um, how would you advise them to go down that path if they want to make that a career? I think for the for those that have a desire to get into the Intel community, you know, either either through their military service or post military service, you know, I, when I went into CIA, I initially went in as a detailee, um, you know, signed there by uh, by the Army, um, and then transitioned into that as a as a career field and stayed, became a case officer, and and went from there, but. There were like going through training, uh, case officer training. There were very few of my classmates who came from a military background. Um, and it was, it, I think it was a, it was a loss to the agency to not have that, um, that experience and that diversity, especially before nine 11, you had, you know, the agency was really oriented towards a white collar workforce uh, recruiting, um, you know, specialized educations out of Ivy League schools. Post 9-11, there is a much better tolerance for, hey, we need diversity of experiences. We need that military experience. And it wasn't just because we were sending people in the combat zones. Um, it was because these were people that were oriented towards, you know, working rigorous schedules and getting things done. Uh, and uh, being adaptive and flexible, and those were those were some key traits, um, at least from the director of operations side. And I think that uh, just a, a short vignette. The I don't know what the actual metric is to it, but it seemed like there was a significant number of people 
in the directorate of operations who had started in a different directorate, a different part of the CIA. For example, uh, probably the most, uh, the highest density of people that uh, that I saw that that weren't hired into the director of operations came out of security. Um, they were hired as uh, as uniformed um, uh, federal uh, police officers um, to secure the compound, to work the gates, to work the you know the access control points, and then they were they were in, uh, they were on the systems, they were cleared. Uh, and then once you're in, moving between job fields, moving between directorates, you know, be it into an analytical role or being it into an operations role, um, you know, those that was much easier. The barriers to entry for internal movements uh, were much lower than straight coming in from the outside. So, you know, my advice. Good. Guys, so your advice is to get your foot in the door. Just get your foot in the door. Get the foot in the door, and you know, find that path of least resistance uh, to uh, to getting into the system, and then and then advance it from there. It's a rigorous process, but it's an achievable process, and and it's uh, the people, uh, frankly, the 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 people that are most successful um, have that that innovation, and and it comes with how you get into your career field, not just what you do when you're uh, once you're there. I will also say that, you know, probably I'll just throw out the last 10 years, the number of degree opportunities that are out there for veterans at universities in the, whether it's homeland security, intelligence, uh, international relations, all those kinds of things. There, there are more degree programs out there. There are a lot of universities now that have, you know, unmanned uh, aircraft kind of degrees. So those uh, opportunities are out there. So if someone, uh, a veteran uh, has an interest in that, there are ways as they're going after, you know, using their GI bill to, uh, to get into that kind of work as well through that way. Interesting. Very good. Um, okay. This is directed to both you gentlemen. Uh, we'll start with Alec, then we'll go to Mark. Uh, is there a veteran nonprofit or a veteran in the veteran community who you've had an experience with or whom you've worked with that you'd like to mention? You know, for uh, for me and and our company, we're fortunate that we're we're able to pull in a a, a lot of veterans, um, and and put them on the put them on the books and and put them to work. Um, you know, there's uh, to me, there's countless um, professionals out there that um, that are worthy of mention and and putting uh, putting into the system. I, I mentioned my mentor up front, uh, Chief Chalmers. Um, just absolute, you know, he's, he's not with us any longer, but, uh, you know, left, left the most significant impression on me and convinced me that, uh, you know, life of service and, and giving back was, uh, was definitely worthy. I'd like to highlight someone who's, uh, not a veteran, but does tremendous work for veterans. And that's, uh, uh, my best friend from high school, Billy Sampson, uh, is a professional golfer at a small course in uh, South Carolina. And every year, uh, Labor Day weekend, he uh, he golfs, I think it's in the 200 rounds uh, over the weekend to raise money for Veterans uh, Patriots Golf Day and Folds of Honor. And he's uh, uh, raised thousands of dollars. His only real connection to the, to the military is me and uh, my family. Wow. So he does that every year. Wow. Appreciate that. Um, gentlemen, what's one thing that you learned during your time in the military 
that you apply to what you do today? You know, I, I came in at a time where I think the slogan was we do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day. Um, there's, uh, I think it's the work ethic uh, and the, you know, you're not punching the clock uh, when you're when you're on active duty, uh, when you're serving, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't start and stop, uh, at the beginning of that shift. Um, and, uh, you know, some, some may argue, including my family that, uh, you know, that work-life balance isn't always, isn't always balanced. Um, but, but yeah. to me, uh, you know, I take away that, uh, you know, do the job till the job's done and, and, uh, make it more than just, uh, uh, than just a, a career or, a, or an assignment with it. 100%. For me, it's kind of the backdrop of our book, uh, and that's persistence. If you believe in something, uh, don't let it, don't let anybody tell you no. Just there's always a way. Just keep plugging at it, keep, uh, and never give up, and uh, uh, great things can happen. Very good. Um, gentlemen, is there, I've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything that I've missed or haven't asked, or, or maybe there's a parting shot to any veteran that might be listening to this? Uh, again, we got a lot of veterans that, that listen to this through the, you know, the VA. Um, is there anything that I've missed or haven't asked that you'd like to share? I would just like to say, you know, uh, when we, took on our endeavor to write our book. It was never about, Hey, we're going to, we want to be a bestseller or anything else. We wanted to tell the story of our team. Uh, a lot of books had been written that focused on one individual. We tried to do this one to tell our story about our team, about a bunch of ordinary uh, Americans, uh, military and civilian that got a task and, and attempted to do their best to, uh, succeed in that task. And uh, I, I would say that other veterans have their own story and I would encourage them to find ways to tell their story because there are people that are much more heroic than uh, uh, just the, the job we tried to do. Yeah. It's uh, for me, it's, it's the, it's the story of the, of the team and the innovation. And, you know, we got told no a lot, uh, we got challenged a lot, and I think for our for our team and the and the, the people that we had the we had the good fortune in most cases of handpicking our our team. Um, uh, they never accepted the no. Um, we always look for a path to yes, uh, and that that transcended even to to getting the book done. You know, we we fought uh, the publication review board to to make sure that we were in compliance and. Uh, it took four years. Um, so we, I think if it were Mark and I, we could have, we could have walked away, but we wanted to tell the story for the people that were involved. And, uh, uh so, so we, I think we wrote off of their, uh, their previous service of not saying, not accepting no. And, uh, and, and so we kept pressing. Yeah. Uh, James, uh, stay school, uh, previous, uh, guest on, on born the battle. He talks about, he was, he was with detachment a, which was a, a very clandestine unit in, in Berlin. And he talks about writing the book about it and the, and the, and the process that it sometimes takes to, uh, to get that story out to the public. So, 
uh, appreciate you gentlemen. Uh, we, we pretty much uh, gone through almost an hour here, a little bit over an hour. Uh, thanks for joining and uh, we'll see you guys next time. We're out. Thank you. Thank you. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. Alec and Mark for sharing their unique story. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is from our VA Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our digital media team honors a veteran on all of our social media platforms and with a blog on blogs.va.gov. You can nominate the veteran in your life by sending in a short write-up and about five photos to the email newmedia at va.gov. Wendell Robert Cram was born in Bridgewater, Vermont in January of 1921. Growing up, Cram often helped his father, who was a doctor, with his work. However, instead of becoming a doctor, he developed a strong interest in skiing. Cram quickly became an adept skier and participated in skiing competitions around the country. In 1940, he qualified for the U.S. Olympic ski team. However, the Olympics were canceled due to the escalation of World War II and after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Cram enlisted in the Army. He completed basic training at Fort Lewis, Washington. He also trained at Camp Hale in Red Cliff, Colorado, and at Camp Roberts in San Miguel, California. Cram became part of one of the first ski troops in the newly organized 10th Mountain Division and used his experience to help teach soldiers the basics of skiing. In 1944, Cram and the 10th Mount deployed to Italy, where his division was given the mission of driving the German artillery from the north, I think it's called Apennines, to open up the Po Valley for the Allied forces. The German strategic defensive position forced the Allies to conduct operations at night. Under the cover of darkness, Cram and his division climbed through the mountains and attacked the German forces repeatedly. Eventually, the 10th Mountain Division pushed the Germans from the position, winning a key victory for the Allies in Italy. Cram left the army as a sergeant after World War II. Returning to the U.S., Cram continued his career in skiing. He skied competitively and worked as a ski instructor for over three decades. He was also a member of the Fraternal Order of Eagles and the Veterans of Foreign Wars. Unfortunately, in April of 2017, Cram passed away at the age of 96. Army veteran Wendell Robert Cram. We honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a future Born the Battle Veteran of the Week so we can all learn their story, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, 
YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song and was written by Marine veteran Mark Milkilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gunner. Fire bullets fly day and night rain. Simplify till we're done another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Made bullet in my back Raining down lead Punching that clock Get em boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gunner bullets fly day and night rain Simplify, do or die Another campaign Here we go, lock and load 0331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one So we're talking March of 2002 yeah. We'd obviously been doing operations now since October 2001. That day, uh, I think we were doing some, we were running through a target target deck for ALEC, uh, some counterterrorism, uh, Al-Qaeda targets probably, and uh, east of Kabul. And uh, then all of a sudden, uh, we started getting chatter that there was a, uh, an incident. Uh, this was during Operation Anaconda. Uh, we didn't know at the time what had happened, but originally we had a, it was a seal that fell out of a helicopter that ensued. Uh, and then a, a quick reaction force was responding and there had been a helicopter going down and we were just going from target to target. And uh, our sensor operator was just kind of scanning the uh, scanning the horizon and he sees a, a, a Chinook helicopter and he kind of just follows it as we're doing the stuff for Alec. And uh, next thing you know, that helicopter takes, starts taking fire, uh, rocket propelled grenades and it goes down. And then at that point, you know, things are getting hype. We're trying to figure out talking through uh, the command and control system, what's going on. And, uh, you know, I kind of talked to Alec, Hey, I think we need to help this. And, you know, uh, Alec, you want to tell him what you, your response to that was? Yeah. From our perspective. And this was the, this was the nice part about how we were doing taskings at this point. It was, you know, the, the, uh, the Trump card was, you know, troops in contact um, or helping Americans. And uh, you know, we had, we had the authority at that point to, to break off of our targets that we were, building packages on and uh and help this and from a cia perspective the, the best thing we could do is get out of the way uh shorten that timeline and uh, so we stayed out of it told mark to you know let us know what he needs and it was off off to the races to to support them 
And so one of the biggest challenges for us, because we were still a highly classified program, is getting in and out of airspace. And, and while we were on the air tasking order, many people didn't know who we were. So uh, uh, my pilot uh, goes by Genghis. She uh, and several of the pilots, because, you know, we swap out every few hours uh, in the process. You know, first first task was to push our way through the command and control system so we can get into the airspace overhead yeah. Uh, which took us a while, but we were able to do that. Same time, my, you know, my intel analysts are building our situational awareness on what's going on. We had some ability to, through the chat channels and stuff, to get what's actually going on on the ground, get, find out what frequencies that uh, people are operating on and, and that thing. And next thing you know, we were uh, able to get to, on the same radio frequency as uh, the combat controller, um, Staff Sergeant Brown at the time and uh, explain the situation, kind of, you know, work with him to tell him what we can do. Obviously, he had been working other air support uh, assets and uh, they had a they had uh, enemy fighters uh, that were had them pinned down from a bunker and other places. And, you know, they had guys that lost life. We we could bear, you know, in your air, you can. You can hear the intensity in the voice and everything, but you, you don't totally know the situation on the ground. But we, we knew it was serious. Yeah. Uh, and, and we offered up uh, uh, our capability. Uh, the I think there was some. Uh, and he didn't believe you at the time, right? Well, I think Gabe did. I think his uh, uh, the army commander on the ground was hesitant. And so uh, uh, we, we had to give a confidence shot if you will uh and they gave us uh they gave us a bush to go after uh we were a little disappointed because you know we only had two weapons on the aircraft um and we proceeded to strike that target successfully and then uh then they put us on a danger close uh not probably not 70 meters away from a uh, bunker where guys were getting shot from and uh, uh we silenced uh uh, we silenced the, those guys. And then, then it was a matter of after we got that, then it was, you know, we, we proceeded to talk on other aircraft to include uh, French Mirage aircraft, which was interesting <laughs> to get them to, because uh, what we wanted, we didn't want to do a heavy talk on. If they had laser guided weapons, uh, we wanted to just paint the targets with our, our laser designator and then them, them just drop the bomb. Because uh, we knew we could put them right where we wanted to at that point, and it was a faster way to prosecute the target. So we we did that and uh, and uh, stayed on target for uh, uh, pretty much fifteen hours uh, throughout the old time. Those uh, uh, those heroes, because they're the heroes, were uh, on the mountain and and uh, stayed on there until they were lifted off the mountain. After that, you you talked about um, their batteries going down and and. That uh, who who said hey don't talk to me talk to those guys that was uh, uh, Gabe Brown the combat controller Air Force combat controller on the ground uh, I think by that time he was tired cold and had confidence in us so he was just like hey you know talk to those Hellfire guys they've been saving a uh, wildfire that was our call sign I don't know who they are but they've been they've been saving us all night and uh, uh, that was that was pretty emotional. Uh, I had the opportunity when uh, Master Sergeant John Chapman uh, at his uh, 
dedication of his uh, Medal of Honor, yeah. uh, had the opportunity to finally meet Gabe face to face years before. Uh, those guys had came to the agency and got to meet some of our crew. I just happened to be, uh, it was during the day and I normally work nights. Uh, so I didn't get a chance to meet him, but it was pretty powerful, uh, uh, moment to see him. And, uh, uh, it's still to this day. I I think it was, I, I think it was our finest hour for what we were trying to accomplish.